You guys ready to dig into this text together? I am. I'm pumped. Um, So we're in Psalm 65. Um, It's there's a lot. There's a lot in Psalm 65, and we're not going to be able to hit all of it. Okay, but I'm going to give you kind of a a what's the word analogy uh, for the way that we're going to move through it. So when I was in high school and college, I worked a job that was still by far, I mean, it's like 20 years ago, but still my favorite uh, job that I've ever had. I worked at a canoeing outpost, and so we were right there on the Chastity River in North Georgia. People would come in, we would tell them about the river, try to prepare them not to get hurt, and then send them on their way. And uh, then at the end of their trip, we would go down to the takeout and help them get out of the river, you know, carry their boats up and uh, hear about all of their adventures. Um, So it was a super fun job, but inevitably, the afternoon would come, and we'd be standing, maybe me and another guy on the staff would be standing in the river, up to our thighs, just looking upstream, waiting for our customers to come. Like, where are these people, right? Uh, Maybe they enjoyed some liquid refreshments on their way down too much, and they're running late, right? And so we'd be standing there, and so what do you do? If you've ever been by a river and you're kind of standing around for any length of time, inevitably, you pick up rocks and you start skipping them across the river, right? And so we got pretty good at it. Uh, and so we would have different challenges, you know, how many skips can you get before it gets to the other bank? Or how few skips can you get to the other bank? Or what's the longest, you know, you can get it to along? And so the way we're going to approach this text this morning is kind of like skipping stones across the river. So we're going to skip the first stone, and it's just going to take some big jumps across, and we're going to grab just some of the main themes. And then we're going to kind of lob one in and let it sink. So if you're like, whoa, he's 15 minutes in and he's only on the first point, that's because we're, we're going to let that one sink, but we're not going to do that with every idea in the text, okay? So you don't have to worry. Like, I clocked this thing in about 20, 25 minutes, so we're going to be good. Um, and then after, after we really let that one sink in, we'll skip another couple of stones across just to see in light of that main idea what else comes, uh, comes to light, okay? So... First stone, we're going to skip it across. If you're looking at the passage in a printed Bible, you can probably already see that it's divided into three stanzas, okay? And so the main ideas of each of those stanzas, one, this is a, this is a hymn or a psalm of praise, okay? So each section are praising God for something. The first is praising him for forgiving his people, The second section, verses 5 through 8, is praising God for protecting his people. He does that by ordering and ruling over his creation. And then finally, verses 9 through 13, it's praise for providing for his people. So he forgives us, he protects us, and he provides us. Okay, so that was skip, skip, skip. Rock went all the way across the river. But we got kind of the big picture there, right? Um, That's the main ideas that David is communicating to us. Now, uh, some of you who have been in my, my community group know that whenever I read a passage or study the word, uh, I try to answer three questions, always. The what, the so what, and the what now. Okay, so the what has everything to do with what does it literally say, uh, what's, who's saying it, who, who is the person saying it to, what's the historical context, like how much can I understand about the context of, that the text is presented in? That's the what. The so what is like, okay, well, so what does it mean? And then the final question is the what now? What do I do with it? Okay, so I want to give us a little bit of the context, a little bit of the, the what, uh, so that as we dig into some of these ideas, we have a better view or mind for how the original audience would have received it. 
So Psalm 56 through 67, so here we are, Psalm 65, but there's 11 psalms, this series of psalms that we find ourselves in that are this growing crescendo of praise. And so we're almost at the end. There's just two more psalms in the series, if you will, that David wrote here, uh, and each song gets more exciting, okay? So we don't get any notes about the music that was, this one was set to, but I have to imagine, like, it was pretty big. It was pretty anthemic, like, rockin' song, okay? So there's a lot being celebrated here, a lot of emotion in this one. Uh, Verses 9 through 13 in our passage seem to indicate that the psalm was intended to be sung during the harvest, Uh, maybe after a particularly hard winter, David wrote this. We're not totally sure, but it seems like it was sat at harvest time, and God had been really kind to provide for the people, Okay, Um, and so here we go. Probably the harvest. We're excited. God's provided. We're gonna sing His praises. All right, that's kind of the backdrop. So now we jump into verse one, and there's this mention of vows, praises, and vows. Okay, so we're gonna deal with that for just a second culturally. So verse one says that praise is due to God, like He's done something great, and that vows should be performed to Him. So performing vows is a pretty common theme in this section of 11 Psalms. Uh, it's, what it's not is like a bargaining with God, like saying, oh God, if you'll do this for me, if you'll deliver me from my enemies, uh, then I'll keep this promise to you. So it's not a bargain with God. It's actually just the opposite, and we see it illustrated in the way that David presents these ideas of praise and then vows. It's really saying we see God has already acted, okay, And he's already delivered his people from trouble. And then the natural and right cultural response for Israel is to praise him and to make vows to him. So we might say, uh, God, you've delivered me, so I'll sing your praises and I'll serve you with my whole life, right? Or, uh, God, you've blessed me financially, so I want to bless others, right? So it's like making this commitment to God in light of what he's done, not like, hey, God, you know, if you'll just give me this promotion, then I'll invite my neighbor to church. I don't know, like whatever like thing we might do to try to barter with God. It's not that. It's God's already acted. And so now we're responding in both praise and obedience. Um, so now if we've read the whole Psalm, which we did, we might be tempted to think that David has in mind that we should praise God and perform vows to God because we just had a great harvest, that that was the main idea. But actually, that's only one part of what David has in mind. It's more of like a a proof point that he kind of ends the passage with. Uh, So it's a proof of a deeper truth that David wants to be sure as front and center in opening up the psalm. So the specific context of praise and vows in this psalm are in light of God saving Israel from a trouble that was brought on by their sin, okay? So um, we're going to look at that. I want to you will, skip another stone across the text, uh, but this time it's going to be like if you skip too big of a rock and instead of skipping, it just went bloop and just kind of sunk, okay? So um, we're uh, going to look at this, what I think is really the most critical idea in the passage, and then uh, for any of you who are rock climbers, any rock climbers in the room? I know there's a few of you. Uh, This is like the crux of the text, okay? So we're going to deal with this part. And if we can get through this part, then the rest of it becomes like, oh, okay, I got it, all right? So, and here's the big idea. 
God atones for our sin. That's a huge idea, okay? Um, Verse 3 tells us that iniquity had prevailed against David. So iniquity has prevailed against David, and that in spite of it, God had atoned for, it says, our sin. So it's, it's this idea that God cared for his people despite their sinful rebellion against him. So we see here uh, an acknowledgement on David's part of both his own sin personally. He says, my iniquity. So these are the, the things that he has done to reject God's design for humanity. But also, there's an acknowledgement of the sins of his people when he says, our transgressions. So the way the uh, entire nation of Israel, the people of God, have rejected God's will, which was communicated in his word. And so what does David say? He says, when iniquities prevail against me. He, he recognizes that sin has ruined him. Uh, he's not saying, I get tempted to sin a lot, God, or I'm just struggling with this sin. I think that phrase, struggling with sin, is something that's, that's like horribly overused in our Christian culture, where we, we say, I'm struggling with this sin, but what we really mean is, I give in to this sin every time I'm tempted with it, Right? Uh, that's not struggling, that's failing, that's losing, right? That's being beaten. Um, we would do well to just be honest with each other inside of our Christian community about that. Um, we, we have a good model here where David goes, when my iniquity prevailed against me, when it won, it beat me down, okay? Um, so David's saying, sin won the battle against me. I gave in to those temptations I was overcome by my desire to do what pleased me in the moment instead of what pleased God. I chose my way over my maker, and it ruined me. It overcame me. And, and this is key. That is what sin does. It conquers us. That's why God says to Cain in Genesis 4-7, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. The very nature of sin is that it wants to destroy us. Now, I grew up in the South, and so maybe you've heard this phrase too, but I used to hear, oh, the devil made me do it. You guys ever heard that phrase? It's kind of a stupid thing to say. Uh, The devil made me do it. It was like a way of just saying, like, oh, well, don't blame me. But uh, Mark 7, Jesus actually addresses this issue head on of where does it come from? Where does these evil desires and this sin come from? And Mark 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus says, for from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So we don't have anybody to blame but ourselves. That's the point. When we sin... We're just doing what we want. Uh, you could think of it like this. Sin wants to prevail against us. And we're like, yeah, that sounds good. Enslave me. Right? We step into it willingly. Um, that's why in the late 70s, Keith Green wrote a song, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt? It was kind of tongue-in-cheek, kind of a comedy, uh, maybe more of a tragedy. But he's really talking about how Israel 
in the Exodus, Israel's been delivered from slavery, hard bondage in Egypt. They're set free. God rescues them in miraculous ways. He shows them sign after sign. He protects them. He's guiding them through the wilderness with a pillar of cloud by day to shade them from the sun, pillar of fire at night to warm them up in the cold desert. I mean, he's just like always there blessing them. He's giving them water from the rock. He gives them manna, literally food to eat from heaven every day. They just pick it up and they're eating this bread and they're like, we are tired of this bread. We should go back to Egypt. Like, hold on, God is providing everything you need. And they're like, you know what? Back then when we were severely abused by the Egyptians, we should get back to that. Um, my friend Micah Dalton in Atlanta wrote a song where he said, my Egypt is in my mind. And, and so that's where I think we find ourselves, that we're not like Israel, we're wandering through the desert, and we're like, man, I really miss slavery, but it would have taken a lot for them to go back to it. They would have had to travel through the desert, figure out how to cross the Red Sea, God's probably not going to part it again, and go back to slavery in Egypt. We're like, our prison, our Egypt is in our minds. It doesn't take us but a moment and a thought. To enslave ourselves again. And that's the point, is that we would rather be slaves of that horrible taskmaster sin than to be free. And so we choose it. And what does it do every time? It conquers us. Just like David, our iniquities prevail against us. Uh, so why talk so much about sin? We were having brunch yesterday with Mercy, and it was one of the things she brought up that a friend of hers is like, I don't like the church because you guys are always talking about sin. We're like, okay, that's actually a fair critique, like if we're only talking about sin. But why talk so much about sin? Besides the fact that it's really core and central to understanding this text, uh, I think it's actually really core and central to understanding the Bible in general uh, and understanding what God is at work doing. So if you think about telling a story, like a story without a conflict is not much of a story. And the story that God is telling through humanity is that the central conflict for us is sin, and it wants to destroy us, and he's going to save us. Uh, Charles Simeon was a pastor at Trinity Church in Cambridge, England for 49 years. So Justin, if you can imagine half a century of pastoring a church, he was a pastor for 49 years in the late 1700s and 1800s, and he once said, the truths of the gospel at once most abase and most gladden the soul. So what he's saying is like to really get it, to really understand the gospel, it's got to floor you to build you back up. You've got to recognize that the things that the Bible communicates about me are hopelessness and then redemption. Uh, Simeon would go on later to say that brokenness of heart is the key to understanding the whole of the system of Scripture. And here's what he's getting at. The, the gospel, we, we toss that term around a lot, gospel. It means good news. It doesn't mean good advice. doesn't mean good ideas. It means good news. And it's only good news when we understand how hopeless we are without Jesus, a rescuer. If we can't comprehend our need for Jesus to atone for our sins, then we really can't experience the goodness of that good news that he has atoned for our sins. In fact, we're not likely to receive the blessings of the gospel at all until we reach a point of being brokenhearted at the offense of our own sin. So this is a song of praise because the God we're singing to 
goes and buys us out of slavery to our sin. When it had conquered us, it had overcome us. He goes and buys us out of slavery to our sin in the very moment when we are standing on the auction block, ugly by sin, naked, ashamed, worth nothing to anyone, ruined, and he purchases us. He lays down his own life to buy us. And that's what we're singing. And that's why this, the text says, shout for joy, because it's like, whoa, I really understand that I was worthless, but God loved me anyway and gave me worth, okay? So now we take that understanding of what God's done for us, and, and I really believe it unlocks the rest of this passage so that we can understand it. We can go, whoa, yes, God is awesome, Right? Without that, we're like, okay, yeah, cool. God's in, in control of things. Like, that's cool. But like, no, God is in control of things. He's holy. He's all-powerful. And I'm nothing, but he makes much of me. Okay? That's where we go, whoa, yeah, God is amazing. Okay? So now, if we're skipping stones across this passage, that one definitely just went boop and sunk. Okay? Hopefully, though, it sunk all the way to the bottom. Like, hopefully, we're feeling that idea pretty hard. I think that's where we need to be, just wrestling with, oh, the weight of my sin. It separates me from God. It makes, uh, it, 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 it dirties up me to the point that I'm, I don't have any value, but whoa, he, he gives me value anyway. So if we're there, then let's relook at this first section, this first four verses. We're going to skip another stone across the surface and see what we can see. Uh, I hope in light of where we've been so far with this passage now, we'll have a clear understanding of why it is that David is uh, so pumped about this stuff that he wants to sing and shout about it, okay? So let's look at verses one through four again together. David says, "'Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come.'" When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose to bring near, to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Okay, so the first thing that jumps out to me here, in light of what we just talked about, is that God hears our prayers. That should shock us. I mean, that's a big idea when you really think about it. But it should also give us boldness in our prayers. Just like Justin prayed a, a few moments ago, like, man, we should, be, we should have great confidence in our prayers because God hears us. It's actually a part of who he is to hear us. Did you catch that? David doesn't say, God, you hear prayer. He says, oh, you who hear prayer. He ascribes this characteristic of hearing prayer as a, as a part of the nature of God who God is to hear our prayers. John Calvin said, the answer of our prayer is secured by the fact that in rejecting them, he, God, would in a certain sense deny his own nature. Let that sink in for a second. The psalmist does not say that God has heard prayer in this or that instance, but gives him the name of the hearer of prayer as what constitutes an abiding part of his glory so that he might as soon deny himself as shut his ear to our petitions. Could we only impress this upon our minds, that it is something peculiar to God and inseparable from him to hear prayer? 
it would inspire us with unfailing confidence. Hmm. God hears our prayers. It is who he is to hear our prayers, and that should inspire us, as Calvin says, with unfailing confidence. He hears our prayers. We talked already about verse 2. He atones for our sins. What else do we see? Despite the fact that we were sinners and that he is holy, God chooses us anyway. And what does he do? He doesn't just choose us, he blesses us. Verse 4 says, blessed is the one you choose and bring near. It's a consistent theme throughout the Bible that God selects his people and sets them apart. In light of our sinfulness, that should bring us to a place of humility and gratitude where we can sing with hearts full of praise to God, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. To be able to say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Hmm. Now, in case the word choose is a stumbling block for you, and I know for some people it is, uh, I didn't write this song. Sorry, that was tongue-in-cheek. Um, no. <laughs> uh, actually, there, there is something really cool that David is beginning to do in this psalm that I want to bring out. Now, it's a theme he's going to continue to develop in the next two psalms as well. Uh, verse 2 says, To you shall all flesh come. And that is a really interesting phrase, especially if you are a Hebrew reader or hearer. Like if you're Israel in David's day singing this song, you might be tempted to go, what does he mean by that? Okay, so it's supposed to be a little inflammatory, um, I think. These Hebrew words here actually really fly in the face of a lot of what the religious people in Jesus' day had come to believe. And here's David, generations before Jesus, prophetically proclaiming, literally when he says all flesh, he's saying uh, whosoever or whatsoever of mankind, or a clearer way to say that was like any kind of person can come and God will hear their prayers. Okay, so uh, in verse 8, we see David say, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in all of your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. So, whoa, it's not just ethnic Israel. Everyone is invited to behold and wander at and even shout for joy at the glory of God. And what is his most glorious act of all history? that he died to pay for the price of our sin and purchase us, delivering us from death to life, from slavery to freedom, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his glorious light. Listen, friends, if you're not coming to Jesus to receive the free gift of his grace today, the atonement for your transgressions today, the only person stopping you is you. Today is the day of salvation, the word says. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Romans 10.13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Remember that the entire context for this psalm is that God's people have sinned against him, brought trouble on their own heads, and he's chosen to help them anyway. That's what we're praising God for in this Psalm And David here says that everyone who, who God chooses and brings near to him is blessed. He's celebrating the fact that despite our sin, God has loved us and brought us close to him. So in response to this reality that he has purchased our lives from sin and death at the cost 
of the life of his own son, we praise him. We don't just sing some songs, but we shout for joy. We say, blessed is the one you choose and bring near. I don't deserve your kindness, God, but you choose to lavish it on me anyway. Wow, I am blessed. That's the posture that we come to this text with. If that idea of uh, a chosen people, uh, I hope it's not a stumbling block to you. It certainly shouldn't be a rock to beat somebody else over the head with. It's designed to be a pillow to rest our heads on. That we go, wow, I, I don't deserve God's grace and favor, but he decides to give it to me anyway. Now, that's not the only thing. He doesn't just choose us. He brings us near, right? God brings us near. Our iniquities prevail against us. We're unworthy. We're broken. And yet God in his perfect glory chooses us, purchases us, and brings us near. Now, why is that a big deal? Besides the obvious fact that God's holiness and our unholiness are like oil and water and can't coincide. Uh, we even mentioned last week about uh, Moses wanting to see God in his glory, and God's like, you can't, you'd be destroyed. i got to like hide you and you can see my back. Right? Like, the idea here that God brings us near is radical, and it's only by the, the blood of Jesus covering us that God looks at us and he sees the righteousness of Christ. He looks at Christ and he sees our sin and he pours out his wrath on Jesus on our behalf on the cross. But he brings us near. And why is that such a big deal? Because God satisfies us with his presence. He doesn't just pay off our debts and give us a blank slate, a new start. He does that. But not just that. He brings us into his house. Uh, Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 to give us a picture of just how prodigal God's love for his people is. That before, just like the prodigal son comes and he's like rehearsing his uh, apology to his dad, he's like, dad, I've ruined my life. I've, I've made just shipwreck of everything. I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. Just take me on as a servant in your house. He doesn't even get to finish his apology. And his dad's like, my son was dead and is alive again. Come on. He covers him with a robe to hide his shame and nakedness. He puts a ring on his finger to say, this is my kid. He's in my house. Right? And he invites him in and throws a party for him. And that's what the Father does for us when we turn from our sin and repent. He, he brings us into his own family and throws a party, and that's here what David is really celebrating. That when our iniquities prevail against us, he atones for our transgressions, yes. He chooses us, yes. But he brings us near to dwell in his courts, to be in his family, and he satisfies us with his own presence. So uh, verses 4 and 5 say, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. Now just two more things to observe this morning. So we'll look at these next two stanzas just as two holes. Um, so what do we see in verses 5 through 8? It's that God carefully and graciously rules over all things. God's in control of everything. He's bringing order. Nothing is outside of his good and gracious control. Even when nature and people, it says, are roaring and tumultuous. 
Can we identify with that idea that nature is roaring? I don't know about you guys. It was, it felt like a thousand degrees outside yesterday. It was so hot. I was like, what is it? It was cold just a week ago, and now it's hot. Like, nature is freaking out. We're worried. Are we going to have enough water to last the summer in Salt Lake Valley? Like, nature is crazy. I read an article yesterday about how the polar ice caps may be melting at a faster rate than they have in the last 5,000 years. Like, nature's falling apart. But then we look at people, and we're like, not doing much better, right? So I think we can relate to this idea of nature and people roaring and tumultuous. And it says he stills the roaring of the seas. What a beautiful prophecy of exactly what Jesus was going to do in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8, 26, Jesus is on the boat. He's actually sleeping on this boat that's like about to sink because the storm is so big. The disciples wake him up and he says to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? It's like they had forgotten this passage, right? That God's in control of nature and people. He says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. This passage is a celebration of God's power, and it should be a relief to us. It should strengthen our faith and help us not to be afraid, because just like Romans 8.28 says, we know that for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. So God is in charge of all things, and he is doing what with that power? He's protecting us. Now, he's not only our protector, but he's also finally here our provider. Uh, we see in this final set of verses that God takes care of us. He brings the harvest. Uh, the whole earth does his will. And in fact, there's a case to be made in that this psalm was written after a period of want or need. And now they're celebrating that God provides, not just provides, but provides plentifully. His blessings are abundant. So when we look at uh, circumstances and we think, oh, it, there's just no hope, it's, it's just run dry, God comes and he provides abundantly. One of my favorite hymns uh, is a hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way by William Cowper. And I want us to read the third verse together. Um, I'm realizing now how tiny this text is on the screen, so... Um, I would encourage you, though, to go check this song out. Um, it's just a great encouragement to my soul. But he says, ye, faith, faith, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. And that's the perspective that we bring to uh, the realities around us, that God is in control of all things and he's working them to to our good. And uh, David uses that as a proof point to say, look, we just had this amazing harvest. God is good to us. But it's not just because of the harvest. He's saying, remember, God saved us from trouble. He saved us from calamity that our sin brought upon us. And that's really the core and, and theme here. So God forgives us. God protects us. God provides for us. And how do we respond to that? This is the what now question. Uh, thankfully, this passage is a response to these truths. And so, uh, partly, we do well to follow what the passage does. Verse 1 says, Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. So we, we exalt Jesus and we say, Hey, because you're so good to me, God, I want to follow you. 
Verse 8 says, So that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. There's an opportunity here for shouting for joy. And the ends of the earth here is a call to uh, advance this good news and message. And then verse 13 says, the, the meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. So I'm going to invite the band to come on back up. We're going to shout and sing for joy together. Amen? Yeah. Uh, if, if your iniquities have prevailed against you and you're feeling the weight of that this morning, then as a response, the offering for you is to receive the gift of Jesus, to be free from the power of sin in your life and the penalty of sin, which is eternal wrath and separation from God. Be united to God through faith in Jesus. Be satisfied with the goodness of his presence and praise him for atoning for your transgressions through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You can simply say to him, Jesus, I'm yours, save me. He'll come in, he'll repair your broken heart. He'll bring you out of bondage to sin and into his own house. If you want somebody to talk to you and pray with you about receiving the gift of salvation, uh, there's going to be some folks uh, kind of stationed at the back of the room who would love to pray with you and, and encourage you uh, on that journey of faith. Uh, and if today is the first time that you've trusted Jesus for your salvation, would you please just uh, communicate that to somebody before you leave today? We want to be able to celebrate that with you, and we want to help you with some guidance and resourcing as you begin uh, your new journey with Jesus today. If you have followed Jesus, uh, then I hope this passage has been a great encouragement to you, a great reminder of what God has done for us and what he continues to do, uh, to remember who he is, what he's done. Uh, our response today is just like the passage, sing and shout for joy. So... Uh, we're going to sing a couple more songs, and I hope we just shake these walls with the praise of King Jesus. Uh, one of the ways, one of the special ways that we proclaim what Jesus has done is by observing the Lord's Supper. Um, and so as the people of God who have received his grace through salvation in Christ, um, who have been baptized into the family of God, we identify with Jesus. We identify with the body of Christ, uh, his people. We come and we take the, of the bread and the juice to say, I, I still do. I'm still committed to this. Uh, I'm still identifying with the body of Jesus. I'm remembering what he's done for me, and I'm proclaiming his death until he comes. And so 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26 say, For I received from the Lord, this is Paul speaking, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes so in just a moment, we'll have an opportunity to sing together. Uh, if you are a follower of Jesus and you've been baptized into the church, the family of God, then you're welcome to come. Come with your family and partake of the bread and the grape juice, which represent the body and blood of Christ, the new covenant in his blood, uh, a covenant of grace and not of law. Uh, 
And if not, uh, then I invite you, let today be the day of your salvation. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word uh, that speaks, it's living and active. It moves us and shapes us. You are sanctifying us, making us holy by the word that is proclaimed. Lord, uh, I pray that we would continue uh, to grow as a people in our uh, excitement and fervor for you. We're a people who love to praise you because we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And and I pray that you would uh, revive in us again that heart for worship, uh, to praise you well. Lord, just as we sang before, We desire your presence. You satisfy us with your presence. If you're not here, we don't want to be anywhere that you aren't. So thank you for meeting with us in a special way this morning. I pray that you would move us, uh, be at work in our hearts, even as we uh, participate in worship together. In Jesus' name, amen.